0: Hi, Woz. Welcome to NetFM Studio. Great to have you here. Thanks very much for your time.
1: What an honour to be on NetFM.
0: I know you're a huge fan of music, and uh, I was just wondering if you might be able to uh, give us a bit of an idea of what your top uh, three artists are, and uh, explain a little bit about why you like them.
1: Bob Dylan has to be one of them. Good choice. Um, even, even though I go mainly back to kind of his early early start, about the first you know, five or six albums, and the day I met Steve Jobs, uh, he was young and didn't have albums, So I took him down to my house and I showed him every Bob Dylan album, the liner notes and the lyrics to the songs, both, you know, were so amazing to us. And we went to a lot of concerts together, bought a lot of special tickets together. So Dylan always stands out in my head, even though I don't really listen to him that much anymore. It was very important. You know, it's just songs that were kind of about society and life and right and wrong. And, you know, songs like with God on our side. And um, so It just had so many. I mean, but when he got to the electric phase with, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man and like a Rolling Stone. Oh, my God. Just amazing what he could put in your head. That was kind of the start of favorite groups for me. Of course, I was into the classic um, rock and roll in those those years.
2: What bands or artists uh, were in that classic rock and roll
1: category in those years for you? just all the ones you know, the first concert I went to was in the Fillmore, San Francisco in 1969. And my gosh, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, you know, he get his trumpet or whatever and just it just went into the, my body and I'd be a fan of live music forever, followed by the okay. Jefferson Airplane, followed by the Grateful Dead. Oh, wow. And all, all the groups, you go back to every one of them and they were, you know, largely a lot of them from San Francisco in those days. So um, that, you know, I just, every single one of them. And, you know, and sometimes I hear old songs that you almost never hear, like Buffalo Springfield, you know, or a couple of others. And I just die hearing them. So but that was that was what I was listening to back then. And uh, I'd have to say that Simon and Garfunkel were extremely important to me, too, because of their folk content, the folk Mm -hmm. scene that was going on in New York. And and uh, the words they put just sort of fit my own life. So much, you know, even songs like The Boxer and and it started with um, uh, Sounds of Silence. Oh, yeah. I mean, to, to this day, you know, these are the sort of songs that there's never a better song anywhere. But the and but then also when you ask about three favorite bands and artists, it is so difficult because I go to so much music. My wife and I go to dozens of concerts a year. I went to every single concert at the large Silicon Valley Amphitheater, which I started with Bill Graham for 27 years. Saw all the big, well-known groups. And then I decided, no, just going to go to small little places and see groups not that many people know. But back in that time, Springsteen, his songs, I I just can't believe they're not. I love songs when they sound real, like they're coming from somebody's real life, describing it like you feel the people that they're talking about and what they were like and what was what was their head like in the song, and especially like it when they seem to be living it as they sing it. And Springsteen, so many of his, his almost all of his songs are, he says, are just really fictional. He just had a real good touch on what made a great song. You know, but, I mean, it started with Thunder Road and like her, um, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting names of songs right now, but. Yeah, I liked a lot that was on his lesser regarded albums, um, Nebraska, and I'm trying to think, the one that had Black Cowboys on it. Um, I love that song so much, and nobody would ever, hardly ever hear the songs that were on those albums and wow. like them all.
2: We always I mean, fat- we have a, a fairly extensive uh, music library here at NetFM, but some of the, some of the artists you just mentioned, Dan, I doubt very much whether we've got them on there, but <laughs> we got we'll a source lot of them.
1: them. Yeah, yeah. Just, the, yeah my life changed in music drastically when a little radio station started up that played stuff that was not on standard stations that were supported by the music industry. A little station in Gilroy, California called K-Fat. Oh my gosh. And it was largely a lot of countryish and folk country songs and word, things I'd never ever heard or experienced. Uh, yeah. Lou Harrison and all and um and I met one of the founders of those last night at a concert that I was attending. So Um, But 15 years ago, I made a rule after seeing all the top groups in the world constantly at Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California, Silicon Valley. um, I made a decision that I'd only want to see small groups. I wouldn't go to any of the big venues like that amphitheater or the the arenas or stadiums. And I've only broken it just a very few times. Like once I was in Milan and I saw that uh, um, Coldplay was doing a concert in the stadium and I got a ticket. And yeah, the music's good, but it's not the same feeling as when you're in, you know, a small place, really feeling an artist like they're living it as they're as they're creating it. And, you know, and I went one other another one I went to was Springsteen way back. One of his great albums was called The River, and I went to his river tour concert in the Oakland Arena And I wound up with a wife and three kids (laughs) and the music fits. So he did a re redo recent, a few years ago of his river to album. He did it in the same arena, the Oakland arena. Um, and I went and saw it there again, just had to, had to, there's some things you just can't pass up. There's a couple of groups right now that if they played in a large arena, I would go see them, you know, groups like the killers and, um, national. And we're going to see national in a fairly large place, Pretty soon. Very lucky to catch up on that. But Springsteen was just so important in my life. Every song so good. And even when other people do covers, you know, like Rearview mirror, mm. uh, I just mirror, uh, I just die over his lyrics. He's so good at it. And a third group that I'm going to mention is a common one that people don't know yet. I like finding groups when they're unknown. For example, I went to a little concert in a record store in San Francisco with about 30 people. And I got to meet the artist for half an hour in her dressing room before the show. She was unknown. And it was Lana Del Rey. I love meeting people. Yeah. A few of them I meet early and they get huge. They get really, really huge. And this guy, I heard his song. He didn't have a record contract at all. He was the first person to get on the billboard hundred with no record contract. And he hit number one with a song called heading South where they let you play your music real damn loud. And I don't know, He was all there was was a video online of him outside his Navy barracks. He was in the Navy, and he's just sitting on a chair with shorts, and he's playing that song. And just, you know, it's a six-star song. And he rose, and I, I sent my friends in Nashville my comments that he was going to be the future of country music. You know, really going out on a limb for people that live with country music. Mm-hmm. And he rose to the top now headlining um, stadiums. In just two years. The fastest rise ever like that. And every song he sings, like on, if you look at, um, you know, TikTok versions or something, it's just amazing. The the voice is the greatest musical instrument ever created. And the way he uses it, and you just feel every song is so real, coming from real life. Mm -hmm. So Zach Bryan is his name. Yep.
2: And I Formation. could go on
1: throubles. It it's hundreds because I see dozens of concerts a year. I mean, you know, even last night I went to one and I get to know a lot of the artists well. And um, so it's very difficult to, to pick just three of them.
2: When you were visiting Australia some years back, you had befriended an Australian music group.
1: A very good friends with, oh, I'm trying to remember his name from uh, uh, um, Down South, That's that album, um, Men at Work. my wife and i have befriended him and we do email with him and get to his concerts when we can a
2: lot of the listeners don't know this you started your own version of woodstock
1: back in the early 80s very correct it was a huge
2: enterprise wasn't it
1: music was so important to me and i wanted to put on a great concert with some of the greatest collection of groups ever and um, you know, Woodstock had been passed and there were bad things about that. At, and then the concert came where the Rolling Stones, there were shootings in all uh, Altamont,
0: yeah. Altamont
1: up here in California, a lot of bad things, a lot of bad word about it. And now there was some dead period. And I wanted to put on a really great one planned with a lot of money to do everything the right way. And, you know, concessions, everything. And we, we had not music people doing it more like professional businessmen. Yeah. And we set up this concert we called the Us Festival. And we had an intent to tell people it's better to work together, to be together like you are at a big concert, than to have conflict and fighting. It was kind of along the lines of the paper that, um, oh, the guy wrote for Beautiful Minds. Uh, um, Oh, there was some guy. But anyway, it was business paper. And I was into it, and I wanted, we, we wrote a curriculum for schools and distributed it to all 50 states on this what? principle. But our okay. US Festival was um, very, very um, unique and different. Looking back, people who know about it, we never, we weren't in the, we didn't get the music recognition we should have. It was the best concert of any, any of the huge festivals you see with all the greatest groups. You go back and look up the US Festival, it was absolutely the best. We sold a million tickets over two years in Southern California, and... We had the largest stage ever. It was the first time ever that we had speakers down into. The, we built an amphitheater that could hold five hundred thousand people. We had speakers halfway down that were, you know, time delayed with mm-hmm. the music. Mm-hmm. It was also the first concert ever in the United States with a large video screen oh. that didn't exist before. I mean, we wow. we were breaking ground, and we were the first time ever using that large video screen. We set up the first three space bridges, two-way video between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And the only reason it was possible was NBC had taken a bunch of um, television equipment over to Moscow to broadcast the Olympics that the United States pulled out of when when the Soviet Union invaded Mm. Afghanistan. We pulled out. The equipment was there. And the the television people in the Soviet Union wanted to do this big setup. And first, we sent music both directions. And, you know, audience booed a bit when I announced it because – um, and back then, the Soviet Union Cold yeah. War, it was like Al-Qaeda. Yeah. And then we had people talking to people, and you realize we're the same. The mm-hmm. the, prop- the propaganda of the governments dissolved. So I spent um, quite a number of, you know, 10 to 20 years doing a lot with Soviet Union, U.S. peace things. I, um, um, you know, Unbelievable stories, but I don't have time for that here. But I did put on the first um, concert in a stadium outside of Moscow. First concert ever that had top... Um, Russian groups and top American groups. Wow, Took over amazing. four top American groups.
2: Interesting twist uh, in uh, the Us concert. Uh,
1: and it is a connection with your son. He yeah. was born on the first day of the concert. I had to open the concert holding less than 24-hour child in my hands, talking about, you know, new birth. <laughs> and and, and new you, birth you
2: brought him on stage, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did, very briefly, you know, <laughs> and we have a big future. Wide photo of it. I still have, you know, one of these huge ones that stretches across an entire wall. It's <laughs> kind of cool. And we, so we had, we had top equipment. Unfortunately, I I didn't intend to. I wanted to make money, but I lost a lot of money on the 2S festivals. Great. And uh, so I couldn't keep doing it. But it did show that there was a market for that sort of thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about the Eagles. Obviously, you're a fan. Oh, yeah. And
1: you, Try to get them to reform for the us festival we did and they yeah. came very close but one of them out in Hawaii somewhere didn't um, I forget which one but didn't want to do it but we came close
0: okay worth a try and mm-hmm. when they did
1: reform when they did reform years later in the 90s they did a set in our Shoreline Amphitheater here in, in uh, Silicon Valley five days in a row those are the most extremely incredible days of my life Wow. It's been the third, the third, fourth, and fifth day they played. It's just like, what an incredible group that is. Have you got a favorite Eagles song? No. Don Henley, some of his individual songs, maybe. Um, Age of the Innocence and, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember right now. When I hear it on the radio, it's the thing oh. is I do thousands of songs, so it's hard to pull them up just instantly. But he has a couple of songs that are so important. and And, of course, the Eagles together, I mean, I don't know, the California song. Uh, has a lot of deep had a lot of good meaning but they're all so good
0: Mm -hmm. they are Joe
1: Walsh Walsh getting up there and his songs are so great so I can't really um, it's hard to pick one out when there's a whole bunch of six star songs in there my standard for a six star song it has to be as good as um, Sultans of Swing you play guitar don't you? I did play for about 20 years every day of my life my hands can't do it right now and I don't remember the chord. It's been a long time since I played, but I keep a lot of guitars near me. My wife gets them to me for gifts, birthday gifts and things like that. And I love my uh, my guitar collection and my favorite guitar of all time. I don't know, it got lost. It got given away to somebody didn't oh, return it or something, which is a bummer. Yeah. Bummer, but yeah. remember them like your favorite pets that you've <laughs> had. Well, <laughs> I never played with anyone else or in front of anyone else, except very rarely in front of a spouse, maybe. And one time I took it to work where I had one of my startup companies and played it there so they could just hear me, but it was just just playing, not singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. You get really good
1: after 20 years.
2: <laughs> one of our listeners sent us an email recently. We put out the call to ask you questions, and we've got a few to ask you, but uh, the one about your guitar was, I may as well read it out, it was from Gabriel. And he or she says, uh, I heard that you play the guitar. How often do you practice and have you jammed with anyone famous?
1: I think you've basically answered most of that, I reckon. Yeah, I used to play for – when I played, I played for um, 20 minutes, about two or three times a day, and I would just – it just relaxed me. It was the most beautiful thing in my life. So – um i don't know i love guitar expressive guitars and guitar notes and music can put my head in heaven to this day nowadays i do not practice um i sat down a couple of times to try it on my guitars they're not even in tune and my hands aren't what they used to be any anyway, my fingers so sure so sure.
0: i play drums so i understand what you're saying it's just relaxing it's just
1: so thank you pleasant thank you hmm. you know exactly yes i do <laughs> Yeah, one time, I mean, I loved Dire Straits music, and one time I was in London, Piccadilly Circus, and there was a um, uh, wax museum. So I went through the wax museum. Oh, my God, I stopped, stunned, mouth open. It was Mark Knopfler. They had one of Mark Knopfler there. It's the biggest memory I ever have from any wax museum, anything like that. I've never met him. I have seen him, you know, even in recent times, but um, seen him play. But never, never met him. Never met Dire Straits. I went over to the very first live aid that was in London, Mm -hmm. and it was in Wembley Stadium. And where I was sitting, the music quality, which is important to me, was horrible Mm -hmm. for every group. And I just was going to stay only for Dire Straits, and they Mm -hmm. played, and it couldn't even. And where I was seated, you know, under some metal overhang, it just didn't sound good. And uh, so that was a bummer.
2: There was a a video online I saw recently in the last week or so. Uh, A street performer was, a very good street performer who was playing electric guitar, was just playing a few songs and someone was videoing the performance and I think that someone was a friend of a very famous singer and uh, guitar player in the audience and it was Mark Knopfler. And, yeah, and and the, the guitarist, the busker, didn't realize who Martin Knopfler is, and he asked for any requests. And Martin Knopfler said, do you know anything that Guy Straits played? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he played Sultans of Swing, but in his own version of it, he it was just fantastic.
1: It's uh, funny you <laughs> bring this up because I watched TikTok for an hour at night Mainly because it feeds me a whole bunch of animals in danger and humans saving them, rescue stories. Mm. But it also it also sends me buskers, buskers because I guess I've liked them enough. Yes. And many I might have even seen that one.
2: get Now I've got another question from a listener from Sasha, and Sasha says uh, it's in relation to the Big Bang Theory TV show. The question is: Did you enjoy appearing on the BBT? And was that your wife with you in the Cheesecake Factory scene? And then there's the last part of it.
1: Excellent questions. My wife and I don't watch TV. We're watching a little bit of series now um, ever since COVID, but we didn't watch any TV. And before I'd been on Dancing with the Stars, they called. I said, who is that? What is it? I'd never seen her. I'd never seen ballroom dancing. I said, I turned them down a couple times and finally a friend talked me into doing it. So when the big bang theory called, my wife took it. She said, Oh, 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 wait a minute. After, after the, after dancing with the stars, we've got to see some video. They sent us a disc of like season three or something. And I loved it. I am so much into comedy and humor and especially the tech side of that. And I hadn't seen it yet. So of course we, I did it. And, um, they, I was surprised. They let my real wife play. They didn't like have to put in somebody who's in the business, uh, you know, an actress. And uh, so, yes, that was ourselves. Yes. Uh,
2: and the last part of the listener's question has to do with uh, a, an important part of that appearance. And that is, you might recall, Sheldon Cooper uh, built a virtual presence
1: device. It was, well, it was great. We, it was a real, real one from a company here in Silicon Valley. And it came up. And, of course, Sheldon on his side is trying to get me out of out of character when I'm saying my lines by making all these funny faces at me. What I should have done was, what I can do, I can roll my eyes in a circle, both eyes, and then up and down, left and right and right and left and <laughs> angled diagonals. And uh, I should have done that to him. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it was so great to see how that kind of a show is made. You don't know in your life. Yeah. How do they make yeah. a, you know a you, sitcom? A sitcom. You got to meet all the people and see all the things they do and what it takes to make a show. And then they do two live. They do a live um, performance on Tuesdays, but they do every scene two times, and they'll put in a couple little changes in between the scenes based on how the writers think the you know what's going over with the audience. Hmm. And the producers were so great. No, we we got we we're still friends with them you know to this day. Johnny Gluckey likes to write us, and he's retired in like Tennessee, kind of, and just living a good life.
2: You know, doesn't <laughs> you, have
1: to be in the rap race.
2: You mentioned once to me about uh,
1: the whiteboards that they had set up with all the formulas. They asked me to do one of those. Um, I forget what they called them, but um, I uh, never got the time to it. I think I uh, just they, ref- they, had, they had professors, physics professors, you know, from That's a local it. college yeah. to help.
2: Yeah, I think you said that Caltech was involved as well. Uh, in it was not like a USC,
1: them. but it was a top professor that was giving them a lot of good ideas for what to put on those. I forget the word they used to describe it. But it was really great it, to see. I got to see how a big show like like uh, Dancing with the Stars is made. And it's really funny because you think, oh, this is really elegant. Well, to be in there, you're, you're a low-paid extra. You have to come. You're forced to wear a suit. And you sit mm-hmm. in the audience. But the guys with the cameras are in shorts and T-shirts and and they're not on the video.
2: (laughs) Now, uh, next question is, uh, it relates to the Silicon Valley Comic Con and it's from Dale. And Dale says, uh, do you still have an interest in SVC, Silicon Valley Comic Con, obviously, uh, since Stan Stan Lee's passing?
1: Stan Lee and I became extremely close friends, did some things together. And uh, it was very sad to see him go. I admired him so much. That was, um, but that wasn't really a defining factor. I was associated with the um, Silicon Valley Comic Con on a on a partnership with a guy who had made a couple hundred million in a company. That really, I was the one that made it for them. And uh, and he kind of cheated. Started cheating me. He was a partner that just cheated. he got divorced and kind of like I lost half of what I was supposed to have. So then I went back to Comic-Con and I said, okay, I'll sit in a chair all day and sign autographs for anyone who donates to Animal Rescue. Mm. And there was they could donate money and got a signature from me um, on something. So that so I basically backed out. You know, hey, if you're not gonna keep the, the original well, deal, um, it did it made huge amounts of success and money in San Jose for those two years. I was with it. And then I dropped out and eventually they came back and had other people. Um, sponsoring it, and it was just dead. It was just a dud from then right. on in San, San Jose. Right.
0: So, Steve, now, you're um sorry to interrupt you, um, Fishy. I was just thinking you um you're fairly passionate about animal rescue and that sort of stuff. I, I'm 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 sort of feeling.
1: No, I'm extremely passionate.
0: Yeah, that's what I kind of thought.
1: Yeah, I'm fairly passionate.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 I kind of get that impression. Yeah, that's good. That's nice. What um what any just in general or or. Uh, in in certain ways, or what 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 what? How does it affect you? How does it make you? Uh, or how do you like to, to do it?
1: My emotions, you know, from my my own. I've had dogs all my life, and what they mean to me, and how much I think about them. You know, when I travel, it's I'm only count, counting the days away from the dogs. When my wife and I travel long road trips, it's only picking you know motels that are good for dogs. Yep. You know, we use apps to determine that. No, it's always been um dogs have been the most important to me. The movie. I cried for half an hour in bed twice in the last week or week and a half. And both times when I go through my favorite scenes of the movie dog, it just makes me cry. Even talking about it with you, I'm tearing up because the dog does so many incredible things to tell the human Mm -hmm. what love and a partnership and a marriage is and uh, Mm -hmm. what he does. He saves the human. The dog is the handler.
0: What about did, did you ever see uh, the uh, the art of racing I think it was with the the racing driver and his dog
1: yes I loved it that oh, wasn't that a great movie yes but that's not the one that gets me emotionally mm-hmm. for what's going on in people in life mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of other there's a lot of other um, you know good movies where dogs have have important have major roles but that movie dog is the one that just
0: gets you
1: it's hard to watch it's hard to watch because I know how much I'm going to cry through it. We've
2: got another question uh, was, uh, it relates to the blue box, and it's from <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> a lot of people don't know what the blue box is, so you might might explain it in a second. But the question is, uh, do you stay in touch with Captain Crunch?
1: Okay, first answer, I stay in touch with Captain Crunch. Who is Captain Crunch? He was a famous phone freak for using devices in early days. He's um, not, like that, not like that anymore. But um, using devices that, that could make free calls. And, you know, he got arrested five times and went to prison three times.
0: And, um, funny thing
1: is, one of his times in prison, um, he had in between prison sentences, we had started Apple. And I thought we connect to phone lines, we connect to power lines, we should connect to to phone lines and make an answering machine to do the dialogue joke that I was running, the first one in the San, San Francisco area. <laughs> And we should be able to make a dialogue joke with a computer. And he sat down and developed this card with me that could not only send out tones, beep, 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 beep to dial numbers. It could listen to the tones that the phone company sent back,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, those little whales and figure out what they were just programmed in basic. And he built this little board and, um, and so anyway, his, uh, it didn't become a product of Apple. It was 12 years ahead of when modems would do what his board would do. Wow. But it um, didn't become a product because the other people in Apple didn't like him. And they had to make it into a product. Me, I could just design. And uh, so he. So anyway, he went and he was in prison. And he cried. was crying one day. And the, the printer and the the computer I'd given him, his printer had gone bad or been stolen. Oh, I had just bought a new super, looks like a typewriter. It looks like a book you read, um, letter quality printer. I just bought a couple of those. So I, I gave him one while he was in prison, and he actually wrote a a word processor in a a ridiculous language (laughs) to do it in, called Forth. He wrote a word (laughs) processor called Easy Writer, and all of a sudden, with the spreadsheet, the Apple II became the big computer for business, the personal computer for business, and they wanted a letter-quality printer that looks reasonable quality, and here was the only word processor. Uh, Captain Crunch made a million dollars on that. Wow. You know, and oh, I, I even wow. helped write part of it. I even helped write part of it where you line up the letters on the left and the right. He was just going to put extra spaces between words. Oh no. Letter quality printer had special commands where you could shift over even a seventh of a character, seventh of a character. So I wrote that into it. And it was just um wonderful. Yeah. So he but he came from this there was an article in Esquire magazine that really kicked off a lot of this. And I saw it the day before I was going to go to Berkeley for my third year of college. I saw it on my parents' table, and I never read Esquire. And I flipped through it. There's this article that says, Secrets of the Little Blue Box, an interesting story. So interesting story. It's fiction. And I start reading about all these incredible um, engineers that know everything about the phone company. Some of them are blind. And they explore the phone companies, and they explore the network, and they figure out how to make free calls and set up networks from pay phones, you know, that, that cross the country. Whoa. Halfway through the article, I had to call Steve Jobs and start reading it to him. And then I said, wait, wait a minute. The problem is this sounds too real. And it was it was investigative reporting. It was totally 100% real, all of it. <clears throat> we said, how could you make a device that if you put out 700 hertz tone, it's a certain tone, plus a 900 at the same time, it equals a one to the phone company dialing systems. You know, it's not like touch tone. Mm-hmm. But um, could this be real? And Steve and I went down to the one technical library we knew we could get into on a Sunday because the smartest people in the world don't lock doors. Stanford <laughs> Linear Accelerator Center was, no, the CERN of today is like the top physics research. Then it was Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, Slack. And we drive into the main building. I always knew you'd find at least one door unlocked. And they had a library, a technical library that was incredible. And eventually, going through there, found this blue-white book from the, about phone company systems, and it had 700 and 900 was a one and 700 and 1100 was a two. It had the, all the formulas, exactly the ones, the few that were mentioned in the article. And we looked at each other and we were stunned. This is real. Wow. And then we went, th- we went down and eventually I designed a digital blue box when nobody was doing digital yet. And it would put out perfect tones that I wanted. And you could press a little buttons and dial anywhere in the world for free. You could go through satellite, whatever you wanted. Um, this was a, uh, just how could it exist? Who would believe you put tones into your own phone and you can dial free calls anywhere in the world? Back then, you couldn't even afford to dial long-distance calls, you know, especially if you're a student. So that was quite a year. And Steve said we should sell them, and we sold them to the, through the dorms in Berkeley that year. But one funny thing. I believe the parts of the article were out to fix Ma Bell to find the problems and tell Ma Bell. And I wanted to be one of those good guys. So when I made calls to my relatives way down south in Orange County, California, I paid. I did them on my dorm phone, and I paid the long-distance charges. I didn't use the blue box to get free calls for myself, and that's probably what barely kept me out of prison. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, was we've got another question uh, about Steve Jobs, and I'm sure
1: you get heaps of those. This is from Margarita. Uh, do you miss Steve Jobs? There were three Steve Jobses, and the, the world kind of sees – Hear stories about there were two Steve Jobs's. one that was kind of cruel and rough to other people and came back. He was a little more mellow and eventually hit it big with the iPod. Um, But I knew Steve Jobs zero before those two, five years before we started Apple. Met Steve Jobs and I was so shy. I had no friends and anybody who understood me appreciated me. He appreciated the fact I could design computers already out of high school when there were no books in bookstores even. There were no court, There were nobody. No computers in schools. So he appreciated me. So we became very good friends. And he was exploring the world as a young high school student. The counterculture movement was really big in the Bay Area. And he, you know, eat seeds and walk barefoot and trying to find himself on nothing. He liked uh, this. So the first day I met him, I said, like, I, I took him to my house and showed him all the Bob Dylan records. That became yeah. a big part yeah. of our life. We'd go to uh, concerts together and, um, you know, seek out Dylan memorabilia. That sort of thing. spike Steve Jobs, oh, I miss him, of course. But I, yeah. hear, I always hear his voice from those earlier days before Apple. See, when we started Apple, we got big money. Why did we get big money? My computer that I built all by myself. The Apple II. The first time arcade games would be color. The first time arcade games would be software. So a nine-year-old could write a game in one day rather than a skilled engineer hooking up thousands of wires over a year. And this computer was going to be all of Apple's only successful computer. For the first 10 years, Apple was the only thing that made money. One computer was credible to start a company. So we got big money for it. And now Steve Jobs was a founder of a company with big money. I would only do things with my friend Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to show the world that he was the smartest person about things. He wanted to be one of those Shakespeare's that takes us forward. And he didn't have the academic background or anything to be there, but he was good. Now he had a chance with a big company. Mm. So he just wanted to present himself to the world as the thinker of computers. But every time he tried to create a computer at Apple, it failed. Mm. Mm. Failed hard. So uh, he didn't you, understand computer hardware or software. he didn't. You should understand it from the inside. And uh, I have a lot of, a lot of stories and memories of him. But we were always friends right to the end because um, – I don't know. Some people sort of had a white hat. They'd helped him. They'd done good things for him. And he never um, got angry at them like he did other people.
2: No. Mm. Although um, when it came time to uh, share in the spoils of um, your successes at Apple, uh, you had no resistance at all in helping some of the people uh, in Apple uh, who uh, deserved a, a, a substantial share of the profits and you, you shared that with them and it's true, isn't it, that Steve jobs didn't.
1: It's true. It was shown in a movie with Ashton Kutcher where he was turning down some early person for some stock that the guy really deserved. And it wasn't. And the guy who played me, Josh Gad, had read my book. He wanted to tell them in the story how I gave tens of millions of dollars of my stock to five early people. Why would I have done what I did if they weren't there? And then I gave tens of millions of dollars of my stock. I sold it to the employees. And so they each pre-IPO and they each got about a house out of the deal because they're working for the same company. I just had my values that I I thought out for myself and I told myself this is who I am when I was you know 20 years old or before 20. And I didn't divert from that person. I wasn't going to let my values be spoiled by some huge wealth i mean i was afraid that that would ever happen in my life so i did not sell out and i gave my money away basically to museums and everything in the city i was born in san jose california mm-hmm. and they named a the street after me who can get that <laughs> <laughs> without being a developer how do you get that uh so i have i have a lot of, a lot of good things but uh, um, as far as sharing and all that before apple um, Steve sort of had a job at Atari, but he couldn't design stuff. He wasn't that good an engineer. And he asked me if I could design this game for them, a one-player pawn game called Breakout, and, where you hit the ball against the bricks and they disappear. And mm-hmm. I went in. To, I had four days and nights to do it. He, the hottest designer in the world. That was me. That's how I felt. But yes. to do it four days and nights, uh, this is not possible, but I, I took it on. Did it. We delivered a Breakout to Atari. In four nights, and Steve said we got paid seven hundred bucks, and he wrote me a check for half of that. And twelve years later, when the Macintosh came out, I was on an airplane with some some of the early Mac designers taking them to give tell their stories to computer clubs out east. And one of them said they read a book on Atari, and I said, Oh, I designed Breakout for Atari. Was that in there? He said, Yeah, that was in there. I said, Yeah, we got paid seven hundred dollars. And he said, No, it said you got paid thousands. Ah, uh, I was crying. I was crying on the plane because Steve Jobs knew the sort of person I was. He could have just said, I need all the money, the thousands of dollars, to buy into a commune up in Oregon.
0: Hmm.
1: So I would have given it all to him. Take it all. You got it. I'd just do this, you know, on the side for fun. I have a, a job as an engineer at Hewlett-Packard. I would have done that. But, uh, no, I cried because how does a friend do that sort of thing to another friend?
2: Yeah. How did you get over that? I mean, it must have been a very painful period.
1: No. No, I don't even yeah. think about it. I, I always go on and live, you know, look at the happy things. And um, okay. and I just sort of say I would have, you know, he could have had it all anyway. And, and uh, I, I met the people that paid him, too. You know, I knew them at Atari, but that's sort of a little sad. He only did one other bad thing to me really ever. And it was he thought that I was leaving Apple at one point because he was favoring Macintosh over our Apple, too. And it wasn't true at all. Yeah, I had made a phone call to John Scully. Why at the shareholders meeting did you not mention the Apple II? All these engineers are storming up and down the aisles and they want to quit. They want to quit, leave Apple and they're good. And uh, somehow the Wall Street Journal called and I sort of told them some of that story. And they printed it as though I was leaving Apple because of that. Uh-huh. And it's a lie. Every other journal picked it newspaper. Every other book from then on picked up that story. Funny thing is I never left Apple. I've been an employee getting a paycheck every week since we started the company to today. I have never really left Apple. And I even showed the startup I was going to work on outside of Apple and to engineers. And so they would see I wasn't competing with anything Apple was interested in. And uh, but Steve Jobs just got the wrong impression. So he walked into a place where we were building the first universal remote control for TVs and all. And he walked into Frog Design that we had used to design plastics, mm-hmm. and they told him, oh, we're doing this. We're doing this project for your partner." And he threw the pieces against the wall, said, "Put it in a box and send it to me. Everything you do belongs to Apple." Oh, wow! How could a human being? How, that was how could a human being do that? I would never bring up a child to be that way. Mm. But he was a, he was under a misimpression that I had something negative about him mm. or Apple. Mm. I didn't.
2: Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate your time. We know how busy you are, of course. Thanks a lot, Steve. No, I'm very
1: honoured. I'm I'm very glad to see things like NetFM because just ideas are ideas, but actually going out and doing something and making something. My gosh, that's really what is important to me. And I'm glad Nick did that.
0: You're listening to NetFM, the longest-running internet radio station on the planet. stay where you are because we've programmed an awesome mix
1: you just can't can't, miss